How's it going, everybody? Sam Rothstein here with The Candid Clarinetist. I just wanted to take a moment at the beginning of this episode to just thank everyone for all the support I've received so far. It's really been overwhelming the amount of positive feedback that I've gotten, and that's, of course, thanks to the great listeners like yourself. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, whatever your podcasting platform of choice is. This really helps me out and helps you to get episodes as soon as they are available for download. If you haven't yet had the chance to check it out, The Candid Clarinetist has a new YouTube channel. I've been posting warm-up videos, and there'll be various content and performances going up on that channel, so head on over to the YouTube channel, The Candid Clarinetist, smash that subscribe button, and I'm looking forward to a lot of great projects coming out of that platform as well. Additionally, I wanted to make everyone aware that I'm actually available for virtual private lessons. I've started teaching privately virtually, of course, due to the pandemic, and it's really been a great platform for me to help spread my teaching. And if anyone is interested in private lessons or coachings, or maybe even just walking through some audition techniques, you can contact me at thecandidclarinetist at gmail.com and we can set something up. Now, getting into this week's episode, I introduced Greg Radin as a buffet artist, but I also wanted to make you aware that he is also a Van Doren performing artist. And this is a great segue to the episode that's going to be releasing two weeks from now, because David Gould is actually going to be our guest. And David is, of course, the Van Doren rep for North America, and he's very intimately knowledgeable about their products and their lines. And we have a really fascinating conversation, so make sure to check that one out. And without further ado, I'm going to start the intro music and hope you enjoy this episode, which is my interview with Greg Radin, who, of course, is the principal clarinetist of the Dallas Symphony. Enjoy. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. Very excited for today's program as we will be welcoming Gregory Radin to the podcast. Greg is currently the principal clarinetist of the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, a position that he has held since 1999. In addition to his work with the Dallas Symphony, he has played with orchestras around the world and is an active chamber musician, teacher, clinician, and solo artist. Greg is a buffet crampon performing artist and was one of the members of the American team of artists who designed the buffet tradition clarinet. We are so, so lucky to have Greg Radin on today's show. How's it going, Greg? Good. How are you, Sam? Nice to be here. I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm very, very happy to have you. So every episode, I like to start off with a little icebreaker question. So your question is, every classical musician has a playlist of music that they would deem to be their sort of desert island pieces. And these are pieces that we absolutely love and that if given the choice of only listening to a specific set of pieces for the rest of our lives. These are the pieces of music that we would choose. So my question to you is, what is the first orchestral piece of music that comes to mind that would be on your Desert Island playlist? Uh, orchestral, huh? 
Yeah, I'm 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 kind of aiming towards the orchestra, but I, I you know to be honest, it can be anything. Believe it or not, I think uh, I would tend towards chamber music or solo solo music um, for Desert Island Fair that would come to mind first. Um, one of the things that just always pops into my mind are are the the late Brahms piano works, the Intermezzi, mm-hmm. which I just find uh, so incredibly beautiful and powerful and uh, sort of his innermost utterances. And um, I could listen to those uh, really <laughs> forever. Hard to go wrong with Brahms, for sure. Yeah, and I also find it interesting that, you know, of course we have the the quintet written opus 115 then you have opus 116 17 18 19 which are these brahms piano works and then of course the clarinet sonatas so where they fall in his uh you know in his output is very is very interesting um as a clarinetist i I always encourage students to become familiar with this with these works because i think it's a real window into his into his world uh, at that t- you know at that time in his life um and they're just incredibly gorgeous um orchestrally the first thing that pops into my mind that's a good question god there's there's so much great orchestral writing might be a brahms symphony with anyone in particular probably the third i guess as a clarinetist i have to say the third right <laughs> Yeah, right. I always, I always like Brahms two the best. Yeah, uh, even though it arguably it's the worst clarinet part, but it's just <laughs> no two is gorgeous. I, I just love it. Yeah, yeah, two is gorgeous, and possibly some Mahler, Mahler four, or some of the song cycles of Mahler. Yeah, I, I always feel like Mahler's uh, best work are the more intimate works that he has done. So the Fourth Symphony is obviously the um, the smallest one in terms of you know force sonic force at least but it's i think it's probably the most beautiful i would say yeah that is the most most like chamber music i find yeah uh so my answer to this question is actually the stravinsky pulcinella suite and which is an interesting answer because there's no clarinets in that piece right but i was fortunate when i was in the richmond symphony that part of our job was to play in a woodwind quartet which is bassoon clarinet flute and oboe and our oboist arranged all of these amazing pieces for woodwind quartet so for example he did mother goose suite and la tambo de couperin and one of the things he arranged was the pulcinella suite which was really cool because uh i was able to actually play the piece and i had loved it for so long before i had that opportunity and um so i a big shout out to our oboist sean welk for arranging that for woodwind quartet and making uh the clarinet player inside of me very happy that I actually got to play a piece that that doesn't have any clarinets in the orchestra. So that was really cool. <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, enough about me. Um, let's talk about your uh, early life and and you know where are you from and why did you choose to start playing the clarinet? Sure. Well, I grew up in White Plains, New York, which is uh, suburbs to Manhattan. The clarinet, I. Started in the fourth grade uh, in school music programs, so big shout out to public school music programs. Um, yep, absolutely. My family were uh, not professional musicians; they were amateur musicians, music lovers. They exposed us to a lot of a lot of classical music and other cultural events that the city had to offer. So I, I feel very fortunate. 
my father, mother, brother played piano. So I started on piano when I was younger. I was, I was okay. I wasn't a great talent on the piano. In the fourth grade, you could pick an instrument. For some reason, I wanted to play the oboe. I don't know why. Um, but they yeah, Why would anybody choose that? I, exactly. And I, <laughs> I think I dodged the bullet there. <laughs> but um, they weren't offering the oboe. And so I also liked the clarinet because we used to listen to uh, Peter and the Wolf the old Leonard Bernstein New York Philharmonic recording in the car on family trips. I remember that was one of the one of the eight tracks, if anybody remembers eight tracks yeah. <laughs> that we oh, yeah. had, eight tracks that uh, we would listen to. And I always liked the cat. And I also had a, a step parent that had played the clarinet in high school. So I thought, well, all right, I'll try the clarinet. So I started on the clarinet and I had some ability on it and... Um, and liked it, and it and it sort of developed from there. Oh, that's really cool. And I know that a lot of us have stories like that, where you know we used to listen to music with our family, or grew up around music, and that's usually kind of where people get started is just being surrounded by it. So that's that's really cool that you know they would play those recordings in the car, and you would you sort of were captivated by the sound. I know for me, it was the uh, Benny Goodman trio was was CD. Mm. We were when I was growing up, we 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 had upgraded to the tape recorder and the CD was like the new thing. So um, it was a CD of the Benny Goodman trio. Um, well, certainly a little later on, Benny Goodman uh, definitely yeah. captivated me. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. How could he not? Yeah. yeah he's amazing. Um, so, so you mentioned that you went through the public school system. And so uh, where and, and whom did you study with uh, privately when you were in grade school and high school and, did you know like pretty early on that you wanted a career in music? Um, so I studied with a few local uh, teachers, um, one um, for a year or so, who's um, not not somebody that that you know people would know. And then I auditioned for the Juilliard Pre College program when I was, I think. 15 or 16 um, and was accepted there. And that, that really sort of changed my life, uh, being able to, to go there on weekends and take lessons and play in orchestra and theory and ear training and chamber music and, and the whole experience. And uh, the teacher there was a man named Don Latucci, who was um, not a particularly great teacher um but through my experiences at pre-college got introduced to david weber and went to play for him and that was really life-changing he was the first sort of great master that i got to work with and he was very inspiring very giving um, with his time and i just learned so much from him and i worked with him for couple of years, um, sometimes two lessons a week, summer, whenever I was around, you know, I was go down and, and we would, our lessons would be two, sometimes three hours long. Um, he was, he was, he was really, uh, very giving, you know, if he liked you, he, he would give you the shirt off his back. And, um, so he, he really, really got me going. I, I owe him a lot. 
Yeah, and you're not the first Penn student I've talked to who who said that. He's just like a very influence. I mean, there are certain people that have just kind of built their careers as these like you know monuments of pedagogy on the clarinet, and I feel like he's one of them. And then the the next person we're going to talk about, obviously, is Don Montanaro, who you studied with at Curtis. Um, yes. And so, yeah, and so I'm really fascinated with you know, these incredibly well-known pedagogues. So, you know, David Weber, Don Montanaro, uh, Robert Marcellus, obviously the most recent example is probably Yehuda Galad. So can you right. describe what it was like to study with him specifically and and how did like learning from him impact you as a player? And, and you know, ultimately I know you, you teach some and so as a, as a teacher as well. <laughs> Talk about life-changing, that, that really was... Um was incredible um just the whole experience um i mean i studied of course the four years with him at curtis but was a, a lifelong student of his i would always go back and play for him after i graduated and and until he died um i spent many many hours with him playing, trying equipment, picking instruments. Um, and he, he really was a second father to me. And, and so it was, uh, it was a big loss in many ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, he, he had just a wonderful ability to, to bring out the beauty in the instrument. Um, he liked to approach things from the music side, from the beauty side um, of playing. And I used to think that maybe he was one of these teachers who, you know, wasn't as good at talking about mechanics. But I learned later on, more after school, um, that actually he could talk mechanics as good as anybody. Because as I started teaching more, I had questions and I would ask him. And when I'd go see him, I'd sometimes ask him something very specific, uh, something mechanical or a little more technical about something, be it, I don't know, tongue position or, you know, just for example. And he could be extremely detailed about his, you know, analysis of it. It's just that he, he wanted you to find it, you know, through the sound and, and through, through the music, musical end. Uh, he always felt like if you could hear it, you would find it somehow. Now, granted, you know, he was working with very high-level students. I mean, you know, you, you can't take a, a beginner and, and just tell him to yeah. find it. But... but um, but he had a, a, just this wonderful ability to be able to inspire that uh, and draw that out of you. And he um, opened up my ears in a way that I had never really been listening to myself prior to, to working with him. One of my very first lessons at Curtis with him, we were going through one of the rows 40 etudes, the, the uh, third one in the 40, the G major one. And I was playing along at a pretty good clip, just running 16th notes. And he sort of got up and 
started walking around the room and I thought, oh boy, he's bored already with me. And um, I was playing about that tempo or something. And he, started, he says, no, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh. And I thought, I didn't play a wrong note or anything. He says, yeah, careful. Uh, the F sharp was more nasal than the E that preceded it. And I was like, I looked at him like, you can hear that? And, and, I mean, you know, at the <laughs> tempo I was playing, and I mean, I just would have never crossed my mind. Um, and he was like, yes, of course, you know, and just started pointing out every difference like that in the sound if things didn't absolutely match in sonority and, and quality, he would just stop me like every second. And soon I started to hear what he was talking about. And, and I always say, I, I literally felt like I had been deaf and, and all of a sudden someone said, okay, you know, now you have the hearing. Mm -hmm. But I was able to hear in that way suddenly and I could hear it on myself and I could hear it on other, player, other players. And, uh, and it is very jarring when you start really listening to yourself in in that way so it was ultra ultra refinement of of sound the, the quality of the sound and and really matching matching the sound matching the sonority and he always wanted things to come from a vocal standpoint so he just always was asking you to to sing more i remember in my later years at Curtis, when I was taking more auditions and playing audition lists for him, and he uh, said, you know, it sounds very good. It's good sound. It's in tune. It's in rhythm. But you're, you're not singing on every note. And so he was always after that. And, and I realized he was right. I could feel my mind wandering, you know, as I was playing something. I realized, oh, wait a minute. And... And that minute I'd feel that, he'd say, oh, you stopped singing. Like he could hear it. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, it was just the moment my mind wandered. He's like, that, that note, you're not, you're not singing on that note. And he just had a way of bringing the excerpts to, to life. So sort of making the, the two-dimensional, three-dimensional. Um, and he just relished in the, the, the beauty and life of like one note. He, he would get so excited when you were able to get this this energy and life in a note. That's really beautiful to hear. And, and I think that, you know, the way I'm listening to you talk about him, it sounds like he not only taught you how to do it, but he taught you how to teach yourself how to listen to that kind of thing. I think so. Um, I, I think you developed the ear, you know, uh, through, through the years of, of working with him. Um, and then the other great thing was that he would demonstrate a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, and he just had the most impeccable control I've ever seen. I mean, he would just, sometimes he had his clarinet, but a lot of times he would just grab mine. I'd be having trouble with, you know, maybe an, an attack or, or just, whatever an interval and he would just take my clarinet and do it so perfectly any note and any register he could just come in on that note he used to say like threading a needle just yeah. right in the middle of the note and um with such consistency 
And he had that until the very end. I mean, the last time I was with him, he, when he was battling cancer and we played a little bit and he just played, he still had that control. It was just, it was just phenomenal. It was so much a part of him. Well, that's so beautiful to hear and, and to hear you talk about him and, and, you know, what a, just a legendary member and, and legacy of the clarinet and family. And I feel like he always will be and, and all of the students and, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's always nice to hear people who studied with him talk about him. And I, I regret that I never had the chance to meet him, uh, in person, but yeah, what a, what a, what a privilege to study, to study with someone like that. Uh, it truly was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know when I was a student, one of my biggest regrets was not taking the train to like downtown Chicago to enough to hear the Chicago symphony play and watch the lyric opera. And so when you were living in Philadelphia, did you make it a point to go to as many Philadelphia orchestra concerts as, as you could? And and also, you know, when you were living in New York, was that something that you actively tried to do? Absolutely. Um, and at the time, Curtis made it quite easy. They had tickets for us. They had a certain amount of tickets that you could get to hear the orchestra weekly. And then if you didn't get those, you could get, I think it was $5, you could get ticket to go sit up in the peanut gallery which actually was the best place to hear anyway in the academy of music in those days mm -hmm. um so yeah i try to go just about every week uh to hear the orchestra and then <clears throat> mr montanara had a chamber music series um that he and his wife um who was a harpist in the orchestra ran for for 40 plus years and so they would do about four series a year so we get to get to hear that as well um so there was there was good opportunity to to hear him and hear of course the other great players you know of the time uh in the orchestra and yeah. also it was inspiring to hear my colleagues too when i was there richie holly and mike rusinick were some of the other clarinet players and, and sam caviezel and so we had some some pretty great clarinet playing going on around me so it was it was pretty uh it was pretty inspiring to to have that you know in your studio yeah and i've ex you know expressed this to other people that i've talked to but i think i've always learned more from my colleagues than i have from you know i shouldn't say that i have from my teachers but i i always learn a ton just from my colleagues just by sitting next to them and you know if they do something really beautiful i'm always just like man how did they do you know i want to try to figure out how they were able to do that and so the fact that you got next you know sit next to michael rusinek and richie holly and sam caviezel i mean that's a that's a murderer's row of clarinet players there and you guys i'm sure all grew together and learned from each other yeah i i think so yeah so uh, if you wouldn't mind just doing a brief run through of uh, your orchestral career. Like when did you, did you get a job right out of school and what positions did you, did you hold before you eventually ended up at Dallas as the principal clarinetist? Yeah. So we graduated early May at Curtis and that year the orchestra went to a festival in Evian, France for a week or so. And I remember a lot of my friends stayed on to travel in Europe and I um, 
had to come back because the Charleston Symphony was having principal clarinet auditions. And I was kind of bummed, you know, that I didn't get to stay and travel. And, and I was practicing during this festival and everything. Um, but I came back and won that audition. So I was lucky to have a job right out of school. And um, so I played principal in the Charleston Symphony for one season and then won the principal job in the Kennedy Center Opera Orchestra, mm-hmm. um, where I played for three seasons. And then I won the assistant and second job in the National Symphony. So I moved down the hallway, essentially. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> moved across the building. Yeah, for uh, I played there for a season it was it was a one year why my while michael went to pittsburgh and during that time utah had their principal audition which i took and won and was able to use that as some leverage to guarantee me a position in national beyond the one year and michael wasn't coming back so but then Later that year, I think it was March, the Dallas Symphony had the audition, um, which I won and, and been here now 20, 20, 21 years. Wow. Yeah, that's great. So, it sounds like you were just uh, kind of moved up, moved up pretty fast, which is really impressive. It was, uh, yeah, there was a run there where I was, I was doing pretty well for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. Well, cool. So, so. One thing I wanted to ask you about is the Dallas Symphony has had two of its clarinet positions filled fairly recently within the last decade uh, with the appointments of Steve Ahern as second clarinet. And of course, most recently, Andrew Sandwick, who, you know, is made a permanent member uh, as bass clarinetist. Um, right. So can you describe what it has been like sort of reshaping the DSO clarinet section over the past decade? And like, has it been kind of different or exciting or, you know, all of the above? Yeah, I would say all of the above. Certainly um, nice to have a hand in, you know, shaping your section. I, um, you know, when I came in, the section had been together for quite a long time. And and they were great guys. Um, I was very lucky to come in. The, the second player, when he left, it was 50 years he had been in. Um, mm-hmm and the bass clarinet player 40 40 something um but they were great colleagues so i was i was you know very lucky um but no there's you know certainly something nice to be able to to have a hand in selecting your section you know that's 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 been that's been nice to kind of see that through and and have some young blood and and you know have their their sort of energy can be uh invigorating and i think it's it's kind of interesting too because you know like you said uh you know when you got there they'd been together for a while and you know i think if you're in a place for a long enough time you'll probably end up you know auditioning each chair in your orchestra just because that's you know the life cycle of the chairs but um you know sometimes it happens where you get like a big influx at once you know where like all of a sudden you know your section is brand new you look around and you went from the youngest person to the oldest person you know it's right. kind of a weird just kind of life cycle of the orchestra yeah yeah the the principal wins had been together 25 plus years when i came in so it was 
it was definitely, um, you know, a new experience for everybody. Yeah, that's really great. And obviously both of them, great players. And I'm sure, um, I've, I've never heard you guys play live, but I'm sure, uh, I can't imagine the Dallas Symphony's clarinet section is sounding anything less than great now with, with everyone in place. And, uh, it's gotta be exciting, um, just for the orchestra. Um, so I think one thing that isn't necessarily realized until you play, you know, you're sitting in a job as principal clarinet specifically, uh, is the fact that like the preparation is, is nonstop because you just have to play huge repertoire week after week. So is there anything or any recommendations you have on like how you organize your practicing so that it doesn't get so overwhelming when you have like all these massive pieces, just like sitting on your music stand that, you know, you have to learn and, you know, be ready for in, in the, the coming month. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, after you've been doing it a while, of course, a lot of the pieces aren't new anymore, but that doesn't mean they're still not challenging, of course but you have a little better sense of what is challenging about them and, you know, what are the pitfalls? And so, you know, you can sort of be surgical about what specifically you're going to practice in each piece, um, you know, just to, to minimize your, you know, the hours you might have to spend on, on each piece. Um, a lot of it is reads for me, to be honest. Um, just mm -hmm. keeping up with the reads when you have the big weeks just piling together. And um, so trying to stay ahead of that, I find uh, one of the biggest challenges. And um, so I have to try to be really diligent about that. And sometimes I'm better about it than other times. Yeah, and, of course. And, and of course, you know, reads... Uh, Reads keep you honest, you know, you think you're ahead of the game and then <laughs> then you get get on stage and they tell you otherwise. So, um, yeah, for reads, too, like, I feel like as soon as you get complacent, you're like, oh, I have a stockpile of great reads. I'm going to be good. Then, it, you know, one week hits and you're like, oh, crap, I don't have anything to play on. What do I right. do now? Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's interesting that you said, like, just staying ahead on the reads is important. And I think, you know, you're right. Where you know, after a while you're kind of seeing things over and over again. And so it's like, it's like, uh, I don't want to say it's like riding a bike, but it's, it's like seeing an old friend and, and, you know, just making sure your fundamentals and your re and your equipment are ready to go. And then you can kind of touch the spots that you need to touch so that it's not just like, Oh my God, there's all these notes. I need to just practice, practice, practice. So as long as right. like your fundamentals and, the, and your equipment are set that you, then you know, you can produce, um, there, you can sort of target your practicing in a way. Um, that it's not right. so overwhelming. No, and, and it, just what you said, fundamentals, you know, um, trying to keep keep your fundamentals, you know, sharp is, is really important. Um, you know, there are weeks where I'm just playing a ton, but I don't feel like I'm practicing a ton. And so you can almost feel out of shape in those weeks. It's a funny sensation. I don't know if you know what I mean, but when you have maybe yeah. just lots of rehearsal and lots of concerts and there's a lot of FaceTime, but you sometimes still feel a little bit out of shape if you haven't been able to spend as much time on your fundamentals. Yeah. I think for me too, I, I noticed like after a, a full season and obviously I'm not principal clarinet, but um, I noticed after a full season, I kind of have to like relearn 
how to play the clarinet because it's just so go, go, go during the season that a lot of the times you just fly by the seat of your pants and you really have to take the time to just do all these things so that you can reset your mindset and your 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 physical nature of, of your body so that you're going to be ready to go and you're you're not compensating in weird ways, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where teaching has been really good. Um, I mean, the more teaching I do, the you know, it makes you really think about these things in a different way and, and deal with them on a, you know, regular basis. So I find that um, it's really, I really enjoy that. It's very healthy. Absolutely. And I didn't touch on this yet, but uh, where are you currently teaching? I know that you do have a teaching career as well. Yeah, so I teach at Southern Methodist University, and I'm also on the clarinet faculty at a University of North Texas. Uh, there, I just do um, I do a master class of just about every week. Um, and at SMU, I have private students, and then I have just some private students uh, at home. I mean, I've always kind of dreamed of having the like high level teaching with orchestra and you know just because that's what my teacher did and i feel like that's what all the the really great players do and and it's good to pass on you know what you've learned and and in conjunction with like you know you can use your playing in the orchestra to sort of help explain things because you can be like oh we're playing beethoven six this week here's what i'm doing and then they can go hear you do it i think that's really cool yeah. Right. That also puts a little more pressure on you, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. Don't invite too many people. But actually, I had I had an experience recently where I was just had gone over Scheherazade with a couple students, the cadenzas, and I was telling them that they could take a little time between each one, that it didn't have to be, they didn't have to come in ex- like right away, you know. After ba 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 ba, you know, bomb bomb. So then we did it in the orchestra, and the conductor we played it with wanted him like immediately in time. Right. <laughs> and so all my students were at the concert, and I played it like just. I mean, he wanted it almost early, like just dead on time with no freedom. He he didn't mind freedom with once I started playing, but. In terms of when you entered each time, he wanted exactly mm-hmm. in time. And I had made this big thing about that they could be free there. So the next, the next lesson, I said, that's what he wanted. I, I, I really do preach what I say, you know. Yeah, right. So you were one of the American clarinetists who had the privilege of designing the buffet tradition clarinet. So can you describe like what that process was like and... Um, it was, it was, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that Buffet had used input from American artists when deciding, designing one of their new clarinets. Um, in this way, yes, that's my understanding. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it was very interesting. Um, we, um, met several, maybe three times or three or four times total. Um, I mean, they had a basic idea that they started with and but with various options and and prototypes and and we all came together and um tried all the the 
different uh, variations and uh, spent some time with them and played them for each other and played them alone and came to, you know, consensus and, um, and they went back to France with that and came up with something and, and then there were some more modifications and um, it, it was a very interesting process. Um, I think the version that is out now is 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 a really really beautiful instrument yeah and they just came out with like a you know what people are calling the tradition two, which i think they made a few changes to it like yeah i don't know exactly what they did but they added the f correction and like put a ring around the bell or something like that i don't exactly remember yeah the bell is is a more traditional bell which is what what we had wanted in the first place and um it has unstained wood and um a few other cosmetic things, but it's a beautiful instrument. Um, trying to get a set of those, but with COVID, <laughs> it's been a little difficult yeah. to, yeah, to, to it's a little more difficult. Yeah, yeah, but I plan to get a set of those. I, I think they're beautiful. Yeah, I'm. I've been shopping for a new B flat probably for the last, gosh, three or four years. I feel like it's been forever, but you know, I'm definitely interested in trying those instruments. Uh, I really like the Lejeune clarinet, and from what I understand, it's it's almost the same guts as that. It's just it's um, the same bore. Yeah, the bore yeah, is, it's just yeah. not gold and sparkly. Which you know, I I, I kind of like the gold, but you know, <laughs> it depends if it's if I get a really good tradition. I don't I don't see any reason why to um, you know to not play on them. I mean, all the models are are very good, and and it's exciting that they're you know taking input from people like you and making these new instruments yeah it was no it was uh, a real honor to be a part of that so the dallas symphony to my knowledge is the first american orchestra to go back to playing on stage since this pandemic hit in march so can you talk about like what you guys are doing and and the the, the protocols that are in place and, and 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 how it's been to make music again sure um so a few weeks ago we went back and did um the Mozart C minor serenade, basically for cameras and microphones, <laughs> they um, recorded it to just to, to stream. It's now available on the DSO website and on the Facebook page. Oh, they took it very seriously. I mean, they for three days cleaned the building. We were COVID tested every day. We were at the building a day before actually we were to arrive, and then every day we were there. Uh, we had staggered arrival times. They took our temperature every day or every time we came in the building. You had to wear a mask everywhere except when you were playing. We were spaced six feet apart on stage, which was a little bit challenging, you know, to play play chamber music that way. So they, they really, I think, did everything they possibly could uh, to make it, you know, as safe as possible. So, I mean, I felt felt very safe. Um, and it was, you know, it was nice to play again. Um, it, it was a little bit strange to get back to yeah. it and, and, and be spaced apart like that. And, but it was nice. And then this week they're doing something with just the strings. And the last week they did something with just the brass. So they're just keeping it to very small numbers where they can have the, you know, adequate spacing and handle, handle the testing and, and, all the protocols but that's just so beautiful that you're able to get back on stage and play with your colleagues i don't know i don't know how i'm going to react when i you know especially when the full orchestra meets again for the first time but i i imagine i will probably be very emotional because it's just 
you know, it's just such a part of our identity as musicians and people, you know, we've all done it since we've been, you know, in our teens. And, you know, this is the longest I've ever gone without playing in an ensemble since I started playing. Yeah. For, for all of us, I think. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's really great that you guys are doing that. And I, I did watch the, the Mozart and it was, you know, and the Ravel introduction in Allegro, mm-hmm. which was really great as well. So I always like to ask my guests if you can sort of describe your equipment and like what you're playing on and uh, why it works for you playing in Dallas. Sure. I guess I'm pretty, what they would say, traditional. I play R13 buffets and in terms of mouthpieces, I go back and forth between um, Van Dorn, uh, M13 Lyre, M15s, and some vintage Shadowville's, uh, Charles and Henri's that I have. I just feel like they give me um, certain color and flexibility and presence in the sound that, that I like, and that I'm able to, to play vocally, hopefully, <laughs> most of the time. With yeah. It. Yeah. Um, and, and where did you get the Shadowville's from? Are they just from a collection you've had or? Yeah, various places over the years, some from eBay, some from people who were selling them that I knew, kind of a variety of, of different places. I've been accumulating for, for many years. And reeds, I go back and forth between the V12s and blue box. Yeah, the the blue box are, you know, maybe overlooked a little bit nowadays, but about a year ago, kind of, or I guess a little more than a year ago, I picked them up again and it was, it made all the difference in the world for me. So for those people who hadn't tried blue boxes in a while, you know, they're definitely worth a shot. Yeah, I always have sort of both in my, in my read case. Just some days one seems to, you know, work better than others. And I use mostly bonad ligatures gold bonad or i have a old german silver one that i like a lot too well very cool thanks for for giving us that that rundown yeah i know that during this time a lot of people have been sort of trying to reinvent themselves like myself uh with this podcast where we aren't able to perform together so are there any creative projects or things that you've been able to do during this time that you had either never done before or uh, never had the time for that's a good question. <laughs> I've been trying to work on my double tonguing, which is always a work in progress, I feel like. But I thought, well, all right, I've got some time. And I was messing around with reed making again, which is something I've never, um, I've never gotten to the point where it's really great, I don't think. But it's something I've messed with on and off. And so... I've been messing around with that a little bit more. Um, something I'd like to get better at. Um, and of course, the usual catching up on my, my Netflix. And, mm-hmm. uh, but um, Do you have any good recommendations? I know I, was, I got really into Tiger King. I don't know if that's your jam, but that was, uh, <laughs> I that was watched, quite an experience. It was. I, I only lasted a few episodes with that. <laughs> yeah, it gets a little weird, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sure. Well, that's really cool that you're, you know, I, I know that during this time, like I, you know, I'd been t- saying forever. I mean, like, man, if I just had X amount of time, I could like, cause I was trying to, I was kind of having some trouble with my equipment. I was just like, man, if I just had like three months where I could just 
reset everything and try new things and try to figure out like my setup, I'll, I'd be great. And so sure enough, the world gave me that time. And so right. that's what I've been trying to do is just like really kind of do things that I was like, oh, if I only had time for this, I would be able to do it. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Everyone was sort of forced to do that. And, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. you can, you can definitely take advantage of it and I encourage people to do so. So when I think of Texas, like I, you know, I, I haven't spent that much time there, but every time I've been there, the, the food that I've had is just amazing. I just wanted to know what, what is your favorite spot to eat in Dallas? And like, what do you, what do you eat there? Like what, what should I order if I went to that restaurant? Oh, it's <laughs> a good question. Well, it depends what you like. I mean, you know, if you like you anything barbecue, if you want. Yeah, there is a lot of good food in Dallas. Um, I guess coming from New York, I'm a little spoiled with food. You know, I miss, I miss a certain ethnic variety. I mean, not that there's not a variety, but it's a little bit different. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, there's no good Jewish delis here, you know, so I... <laughs> I crave that sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but um, hard to get a good bagel or some yeah. good, good corned beef, you know. There's uh, there's a great barbecue place just near a hall called Sammy's, and uh, it's just a little little hut almost, and mm -hmm. uh, with tables, and that's uh, really good barbecue if you like that. And then there's quite a few... Tex-Mex places, if you if you like that, I'm not a huge Tex-Mex fan. Living in Texas, I guess that's sacrilege. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it depends what you want. But you could get great steak, of course. A place called Bob Steak and Chop House, which is one of my favorites, and um, it's been here a long time. But uh, you won't you won't go hungry, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, you know, I. I always love Texas for the food because like, you know, you go to New York and or Chicago and it's all about, you know, the fine dining or whatever. But in Texas, I feel like, you know, all the like $10 and below meals are you can go to like, like you said, this hole in the wall. Place. It's just amazing. It's incredible. You know, it's just like this, you know, what I would call street food. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just really they're just that yeah, Texas is just Houston in particular. But, you know, Texas in general is just loaded with places like that. And man, I love it. It's great. So are there any hobbies that you have outside of clarinet that you enjoy doing or taking part in? Um, you know, just anything that you enjoy. I like to travel, but of course that's <laughs> not been possible yeah. right now. Yeah. I like yeah, to you can travel, travel to the park and that's about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's, that's been put on hold and I used to enjoy tennis a lot. I haven't been doing that too much of late, but I like to watch it still. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it sounds like the US Open is is a, is good to go so you can at least watch that uh, yeah. whenever that is August or September. So when you try do you have any like what's your next spot you're going to travel to? Do you have any 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 thing on your hit list that you that you really want to see next? Mm. Well, I'm always looking to go back to France. I mm. love I love going there. Um, but of course, that could be quite a while. And uh Italy I think is is on my list. Um, yeah. but again, that's probably not a great place to go right now. Yeah. Uh, not right now, but you know, yeah. it'll, it'll yeah. be something to look forward to for sure in the future. Yeah. Um, so before I let you go, uh, yeah. do you have any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, words of wisdom? I always like to give the floor to my guests just in case they have oh. anything they want to say. Practice slowly. 
<laughs> Slowly. Yeah. That's uh, that's my that's my advice, and uh, and try to say something. You know, when you play, I think everyone. I mean, the clarinet playing is amazing these days. What what people can do. I mean, I'm pretty amazed. You know, when I hear hear people their proficiency on the instrument, but basic musical understanding I find is lacking in a, in a lot of players. Yeah, and do you feel like there's something that they can do to maybe focus on that? Like, is it just listening to things? Uh, is it listening more acutely, like you described? Like, what's what do you I think? I think it's trying to yeah be a well-rounded musician and not just focused on clarinet, but yeah, ex- exposing yourself to other music, um, chamber music, music of, of other instruments, um, I think is so important. I mean, all the great string quartets and string chamber music and piano works and solo violin and cello and opera and, you know, listening to a lot of great singers. Uh, I think all that can only help. Uh, and it's great, just great music, so to enjoy. Yeah, and I, I think one of my favorite things about having done this podcast is just uh, learning from my guests and what and and heeding their advice and talking to you has, you know, I'm I think one of the first things I'm going to do is is listen to those Brahms piano pieces that you referenced earlier and, you know, really just expand my musical knowledge and listen to more music and and people and players and not just clarinetists and and. Just making mm-hmm. sure that you understand music as a whole. So, so thank you for for giving yeah. me advice. No, if you listen, there's the recording Radu Lupu did of them is my favorite, probably. Sounds good. I will I will need to add that to my to my Spotify playlist. <laughs> um. So thank you so much, Greg, for joining us today. Uh, it's been really enlightening just to hear about all the great things happening in Dallas and uh, learning about your life and career. So for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at The Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist. (laughs) 